live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch, fresh off the plane from Poland. Yes, correct. Two and days. How was it? Well, it was an, a French trip overwhelmingly, JLE uh, young professionals, and we met a very interesting survivor who only found out on her mother's deathbed that she was actually Jewish and that her mother was not her mother and had adopted her. Um, she was 22 at the time. Wow. So we met her in Poland. She managed to trace her parents over? Uh, yes, yes. In fact, we did more than that. We took the group to the place where we worked out her parents had been killed. But wow. for some other time, a different, a Holocaust podcast. So you're still discovering new things in Poland after all these years. Absolutely. Okay, welcome back to, I believe it's part three of British Prime Ministers. Sort of. It's related to uh, an 18th century Prime Minister, but perhaps broader than that. Okay, so we left off, if my memory serves me right, it's the 1700s. It was a time where Jews were assimilating into society, as you put it last week. And you also said there were certain poor elements were associated with crime. And this was especially happening in London. Yes. So, yeah, that's all you, your memory does serve. This week, we will focus on the wealthier Jew. Over the course of the 18th century... Certain Jews became central to trade and finance. They provided the army with supplies, the government with loans to uh, fund wars, and international Jewish brokers promoted trade in India, the Caribbean, North America, even South America. And since Jews had become part of English society without any special legislation, there were few barriers for them to overcome. Foreign-born Jewish immigrants, however, were subject to some major inconveniences. They weren't permitted to hold land. They couldn't own or even be a partner in the ownership of a British ship. And this is obviously at a time when ownership of ships is integral to trading, to merchant trading. And um, those who engaged in foreign trade were subject to custom duties, which were often twice as high as the native mer merchants were subject to. So, unsurprisingly, a Jewish Naturalization Act was proposed in 1753, which would allow these wealthy Jews to acquire the same rights and make England a more attractive place for foreign Jewish merchants, especially those who had managed to leave Spain, Portugal, and who would often automatically almost go to the Netherlands, particularly Amsterdam, which was a trading rival of England. Now, under the terms of the Act, it would still require effort and money um, because each individual would need approval from Parliament. So it effectively confined the outcome to a small minority of Jews. And the Prime Minister, Pelham, was all in favour because the wealthy Jew could be expected to contribute to the nation's prosperity. So it's, you know, it's a good deal for both sides. In the colonies at the same time, such as North America, 
naturalization was available to foreign-born Jews simply by being resident there for seven years. And uh, we touched on this last week. We mentioned that 190 Jews um, obtained British nationality in Jamaica by doing just that. But it's not very likely that Portuguese or German Jews are going to start crossing the Atlantic and spending seven years in, in the New World. So in January 1753... Joseph Salvador, who is one of the more prominent members of London's Sephardic community, and he is very active in the East India Dock Company, he contacts the Duke of Newcastle, who is the older brother of the Whig Prime Minister Henry Pelham. Whig with an H, I assume. Yes, not the things you wear. The two main political parties were divided into Whigs and Tories, a forerunner of the Liberals and Conservatives of the 1800s and eventually Labour and Conservatives of the uh, 1900s, although they were much less representative of the people because the vote didn't cover the working class, it didn't cover women at all. But there were still two Houses of Parliament, the House of Lords and the House of Commons. Now, the wording of the proposal in January 1753 was that any person professing the Jewish religion, whom it may in future be thought proper to naturalize, shall, in lieu of taking the Holy Sacrament, take the oaths of supremacy and allegiance to the king, or such other oaths as may be thought proper. Which would mean, even if you're not a Christian, you could become a citizen. And it's formulated in such a way that it encouraged only those that may be thought worthy and useful. Meaning rich. <laughs> yes. And effectively discouraged, you know, the middling and lower sort from coming into those realms. It becomes known as the Jew Bill. And it had the support of many of the Whigs in Parliament, who were in the majority by far at the time. The bill is read for the first time in the House of Lords on the 3rd of April, 1753. And after three quick readings, it's voted in unanimously on April 16th. And it's noteworthy because there was an absence of any anti-Jewish pushback in the House of Lords, which is partly due to the Church of England, whose leaders sat in the House of Lords. And that was probably due to the fact that in the previous century, there'd been major religious controversies, and it had moved the church away from fanaticism. So they, you know, they preached sobriety and moderation and uh, good works rather than excessive displays of piety, which was very different to mainland Europe at the time, especially Catholic Europe. And so, you know, this has now passed through the House of Lords. It's all good. And it now moves to the House of Commons. What says from the House of Lords to the House of Commons? Yes, a bill could start in either house at the time. Nowadays, bills would originate in the House of Commons and then go to the Lords for assent. Not necessarily so at the time. In fact, Pelham is a Lord. He actually sitting in the House of Lords, which would never happen nowadays. But here is where it hit a brick wall, because there's a new election which is due in 1754, the next year. And some of the members of parliament didn't have funding for purchasing seats. 
the way elections worked then in the 18th century was very unequal. The distribution of seats in the country didn't reflect the distribution of population across the country. So you've got industrial towns like Birmingham, Manchester, they had no representation. While famously, or I guess infamously, the 11 voters of a place called Old Sarum retained their ancient rights to elect two members of parliament. <laughs> right? So, especially if you're in opposition, you needed either money often or a cause to get you re-elected. And the Tories who wanted to keep their seats, they fasten on this Jew bill as a rallying cry in the, you know, in the upcoming election. You mentioned earlier that Jews had few barriers to overcome. What what changed? You mean, why would they have legislated against them? Yeah. Well, in a way, nothing changed. The root of the problem was the very method by which Jews had come back to England under Oliver Cromwell. He decided in 1656 to more or less turn a blind eye to Jewish residents, which we mentioned at length in our podcast on political intrigues. What that meant was there were no special laws made regarding the legal position of the Jews in England. It's great in 1656 when they come in, but equally it meant that there was little actual legislation to fall back on. Um, when defining the Jews and their status in law. So if the question is brought up, who are these Jews? What do they want? What do we want from them? It's never been discussed, really. And therefore, there's an opportunity to, you know, make hay while the sun shines for the opposition. Interestingly, there had been several attempts in the Irish Parliament, which was still part of the British Empire, in fact, in, I think, a month from now, it'll be exactly 100 years of independence for Ireland. Um, so the, the Irish Parliament had tried to pass legislation enabling Jews to be naturalised. There were a few bills that were introduced into the Parliament there, but all of them were blocked there by the House of Lords and the Church, which was the opposite of the situation in England. Either way, in England, in the House of Commons, there is very, very strong opposition to the bill. And basically, it's not just to the bill itself, but to Jewish existence in England. It is now described as the greatest danger England has faced in that generation. And um, to paraphrase, they let slip the dogs of war, because by the second reading on the 7th of May, even some of the Whig members spoke out against it. You have a Tory MP, uh, William Northey, he warned that if the bill is passed, the Jews would buy up every estate in the countryside, and then there would be a private meeting where all the Jews would attend, and they divide amongst the tribes, their several tribes, all of England by lottery, as they did to the land of Canaan. So this was said in public? In the House of Commons, wow. public records, you know, you want to know how anti-Semites think? Yeah. 
Um, the leading opponent of the bill was Sir John Barnard, who was a former Lord Mayor of London, and he was a long-time enemy of Jewish merchants. He argued that the Jews would immigrate in, in droves, and all business would end up in their hands, and they'd probably leave you know, the working part, the labor, to the poor Christians, but they will be the masters. And once again, this is all openly in Parliament. And when they tried to find source material about the Jews, given you know, that the Jews hadn't been in the country for 100 years by then, so they looked to the Bible. One speaker spoke about the story of Esther, where as soon as the Jews got power, in two days they put nearly 76,000 enemies to death without judge or jury. <laughs> right? Quoting twist. Yeah, quoting from the Megillah. Yeah. And then... All hell breaks loose because the issue moves from Parliament to the streets, and every prejudice is brought up, financial, financial, religious, moral. In the space of a few months, the whole nation was inflamed with this, you know, Christian zeal. And more was published about the Jews and their religion and their character and their, their behavior in 1753 than any year before and possibly any year since. Uh, there's one article I've read that lists, gives the actual 80 publications that were created at this time. Wow. Shows also how dependent Parliament was on the will of the people. Which is democracy, but I, I guess here what it showed is how the people, in addition, uh, could be persuaded of the most absurd and, and raw prejudices. Which came to light, obviously, more recently in 1939. Right, correct. What was yeah. the Prime Minister doing all along? Was he in so support? He is supporting this bill adamantly. Um, although one of his arguments in Parliament was that the bill would facilitate the conversion of the Jews to Christianity. Uh, he, um, he said there is a fashion in religion, just like everything else, and it's unfashionable to be of a different religion from that which is established in the country in which people live. You know, that the Jews have actually stood out in that respect, and all our enemies have you know, quoted that, that we are, uh, um, we, we don't assimilate. Uh, but, um, you know, whether he said this because he actually supported um, the belief or just to get rid of the detractors and he was interested in the economics, difficult to know. And he instigates, uh, because of the public outcry, um, a response, 102 London merchants and traders sign a petition that says that if the bill passes, it will increase the commerce and credit of the nation. And the other side responds with a protest that this bill is not just about money. It's going to dishonor the Christian religion. It's going to endanger the constitution. It's going to destabilize the entire country. And the Prime Minister argues back that this is an exaggeration. It only affects a few Jews. And anyway, you know, since Jews can't intermarry, we don't need to fear that they will have any success in converting our country. Wow. So now he's going sort of the other way. And the whole country is speaking about one thing only, the Jews. Wow. Very timely as well, because we've been all over the media recently. Right. Right. And but you, this would, is, you would uh, think this is a newfound This thing. was much, much worse. And on the third and final reading in the House of Commons on the 22nd of May, the opposition to the bill had increased from 16 to 55. 
the number of government supporters remained the same at 96, and the bill passed, and it was signed into law by George II on the 7th of June, 1753. So that's a sigh of relief. No, it was the exact opposite. Why? (laughs) Because by now, the Tories were convinced, given the public uproar against the bill, that the Whigs are going to be more easily defeated in the upcoming election if the bill is passed than if the bill is defeated, because that shows, you know, these Whigs, they are just Jew lovers and they're going to give over the whole country to the Jews. So the public uproar continues, I guess. Yes. I mean, I'll, I'll read you a couple of extracts. Jewish settlement represents a serious threat to the established Church of England, to the very character of the nation, to the liberty and well-being of the British people and to the entire future of the realm. And there was a a curious uh, preoccupation in popular literature with circumcision. Uh, which was seen to be an addition to the takeover of the land and the economy. You have a a song in Jackson's Oxford Journal in September 1753 in the chorus line, which is repeated four times through the song, that with the passage of the Jewish naturalization bill, Britons will lose their liberties, properties and their foreskins. (laughs) Like a nursery rhyme. Yep. And one particular newspaper was instrumental in these many attacks, almost daily. It was the London Evening Post. And we have to realize that the provincial newspapers of the time were completely dependent on London newspapers for their news, for their views, and they copied them, you know, verbatim. And no item was too small or too trivial for the Post to print. So you don't get Jews mentioned by name. It was sort of anonymous, the Jews. Uh, It's a future threat. But essentially, there's no crime they'd be incapable of if you allowed them. And the Post is always looking for new ways of capturing the attention of its readers. So it latches on to the old accusation of uh, ritual murder, the blood libel. And its correspondents are soon happily engaged in ransacking history for examples of Jewish cruelty. Uh, You have uh, a reader from Nottingham sent in an account of a cruel rebellion of the Jews where they inhumanely butchered almost a half a million people in the year 115 CE. So the Post built up a picture of the Jews as cruel, sinister monsters. And, you know, the extract I read to you was September and the bill passed in June. So it's still ongoing months later. But the Post realizes that despite the viciousness of these attacks, even the most bigoted reader is going to get tired of a sort of, you know, a monotonous succession of letters condemning these these, uh, blasphemous Jews. So they moved to sarcasm and, uh, you know, sort of cynical humor. And they print the news from 100 years hence. In other words, a typical newspaper from 1853, which by then, as a result of the Jew bill, would see England ruled by the Jews. And these are extracts from the newspaper. Quote, last week, 25 children were publicly circumcised at the hospital in Brownlow Street. Last night, the bill for naturalizing Christians was thrown out of the Sanhedrin by a very great majority. Last Friday, being the anniversary of the crucifixion, 
this was observed throughout the kingdom with the greatest demonstrations of joy. <laughs> right? It's, and more, it's almost more powerful, this uh, type yes, of press. Yeah, yeah, much better. On Sunday, an order came from the Lord Chamberlain forbidding, under the severest penalties, to exhibit, in other words, to show a certain scandalous piece which is highly injurious to our present happy establishment. It's entitled The Merchant of Venice. <laughs> And then the last part, recently the outlawed smuggler George Britton was brought up to Newgate Prison under strong guard. He was caught on the coast of Sussex trying to smuggle pork into the kingdom. And now, of course, his name is Britton because he represents that which was and has now been destroyed. And there are dozens of satires published with the Jew as their theme. They even rewrote the story from Cedra in a few weeks' time, of Yaakov and his sons and Shechem, in which uh, the fictional conversation takes place with the Pelamites. The Jews said of the Pelamites, they are peaceable with us, therefore we will dwell in their land and trade therein, for behold, the land is large enough for us, let us, us take their daughters for us to, for wives, and their land for portions, right? You look in Vayishlach, uh, that's exactly you know, the terminology. Only herein will the Pelamites consent un unto us, that we clear off their mortgage, and give them sufficient number of banknotes, then they will order every male to be circumcised. And it came to pass on the third day after circumcision, that the Jews took up their swords and slew every male of the Britons. Right, so what you're actually now seeing from the attacks that they're aimed equally at the Prime Minister, who, according to the Post, had betrayed Christianity in return for a huge bribe. The uh, figure mentioned is £80 million. Pounds. And so wouldn't the Prime Minister be of his best interest to shut this down? Because it's almost an attack on, on them as well. Okay, so we will get to there and see what he actually does. I just want to ask about last week you mentioned the coin changing, the pickpocketing the criminal records of the Jews mm -hmm. where does this come in with this whole anti-Semitic uh, You mean why isn't this mentioned about the Jews that yeah. they're criminals? I, you don't have to go back hundreds of years and make you know cynical satire when you have right. real life stories. Okay so actually before the 1760s Jewish criminal activity wasn't regarded as uh, I guess an acute social problem you can bet your bottom dollar that had there been a noticeable number of Jews back then who were criminals, the opponents of the Jewish naturalization bill would have exploited this. But that wasn't the case back then. OK, so what happens is that this diatribe is ongoing. The Jews had non-Jewish supporters. And, you know, their pamphlet is often by, answered by another pamphlet, although some of the defences were more hurtful than helpful. Uh, one writer wrote that it was ridiculous to imagine that all the Jews would move to the country because they recognised that they are so detested by the Christians that the less they made themselves known, the safer it would be for them. <laughs> right. But it, it dominated the country especially the press, which gave the impression of a country united against the bill. And issue after issue, there are copies of instructions sent in by various constituencies to their MPs, ordering them to vote for repeal. So no candidate who had voted for the bill would have the remotest chance of being re-elected, except perhaps in Old Sarum. You have a paper called the Norwich Mercury, which had always supported the Whigs. 
and you have the Cambridge Journal, which was politically neutral. Both of them have to now start reprinting the Post's attacks. And the uh, Whig governing party, which was worried about a disastrous result at the upcoming election, now does exactly as you mentioned. It brings in a bill to repeal the measure. The Duke of Newcastle introduces the new bill into the House of Lords in November, and he says the choice the government has no choice. It's got to yield to public uh, clamour, and so intense. And widespread is the opposition that the government has to bow before the storm, which, of course, is very unusual. But with an election looming, if you're endorsed by Trump, you're as good as dead. Yeah. Right. So, you know, that's what they have to do. Ravi Hirsch, I'm aware that I keep asking this, but I'm going to ask it again. If this was so widespread, this was all over the place, and this is the biggest uh, media bash on Jews seemingly in history. Why have I never heard about it? Indeed. Okay. Yes. In other words... Are you um, making all this up? <laughs> right. You should have heard perhaps about plans that Jews were making for mass uh, emigration from England, you know, acquiring uh, Israeli passports. Um, I mean, that's what happened when Jeremy Corbyn, so right. recently, yep. he nearly got in and everyone was moving to Israel. This seemed so dangerous to walk the streets. Right. And would have been a scary and a worrying time for the Jews. So why have you heard nothing about this? Because... Interestingly, it would be wrong to take all these statements against the Jews literally in, in the way of regarding them as expressing the feelings of the nation. The debate over the Drew Bill was never about maybe we should never have readmitted them in the 1600s. Maybe we should expel them. Maybe we should, ex uh, you know, restrict immigration. And unbelievably almost, after the Drew Bill had been repealed and after the parliamentary elections of 1754, which the Whigs won again easily, the entire affair is forgotten. It had no effect whatsoever on the status of Jews in the country. It was opportunism. And in a very British way, there is no record of acts of violence, definitely not widespread acts of violence, or mob unrest and hostility to the Jews in 1753. You know, if this would have been France, think about Dreyfus, and we spoke about, you know, the, the, the mob rule then during his second trial. In Germany, the Hep Hep riots at the beginning of the 1800s. In England, nothing. This level of hysteria in pre-expulsion days, it would have sparked a pogrom. So what are you saying about the British? In, you're saying they're just indifferent. They were not emotionally invested in this. It was a good read. And, you know, it made sense that if that's what's going to happen, that the Jews shouldn't be allowed to run the country. But once the Whigs see sense and they're not going to allow them to run the country... Okay, fine. No and problem. And who cares about the hundreds of years of murder and all that stuff? In other words, that was irrelevant to my life. It wasn't happening now because, as we mentioned, you know, there's no criminal element apparent amongst the Jews at the moment. So this is a sort of a, a future picture of what will be if the bill, bill passes. It hasn't passed. Okay, next. Right. So, so it British. helps that we're quite a cynical people and we don't take facts so easily. I'm not sure, because at the time you're not talking about an educated population. 
So it's very different the way we would view news and how we'd analyze it and discuss it. Then it's much more accepted mm. at, at face value. Um, but basically, the whole subject of the Jews disappears from public conversation, from newspapers, from anyway, so it's gone. And which is why you've never heard of it. It is amazing to see how the press had influence even back then and how the rabble could in some ways believe anything and that the Jews had friends in public. But the outcome is odd. It's probably unparalleled by any legislation anywhere in Europe for hundreds of years. Wow. Fascinating. Thank you for that. I'm going to move on to something a bit different tonight, Trevor Hirsch. At the end of every podcast, I say, send in your comments and feedback. And right. we generally respond to all of them. But I thought it would be a bit different to actually read out some of the emails that we've been receiving. I'll let you do the okay. honors. So if you'd like to start, just a, a few standouts, I would guess, besides for the compliments, which are all lovely right. to receive. <laughs> okay, so an email from Richard Wood. Dear Rabbi Hirsch, I live in Vancouver, Canada, and enjoy listening to your podcasts each week. Oh, that's good. You mentioned Lord Rosebery and his marriage to Hannah Rothschild. That's the last podcast that we did. There is a plaque below two stained glass windows in Middle Street Shul in Brighton that state that the windows were donated to mark the occasion of Hannah's wedding to Lord Rosebery. I grew up in Brighton and have always found this odd to have in a shul. Right, so in other words, an intermarriage being celebrated in a shawl with stained glass windows. Uh, yes, I mean, the only thing I can think of is maybe she, because she was active in Jewish charities, perhaps there was a donation made to somewhere local for the occasion. But yes, odd nonetheless. Okay, next one, which we received from Yudi Mellinger. I have listened for the first time to your podcast. One of our family members was rescued in late 1941 from Nazi-occupied Poland with the knowledge and involvement of Winston Churchill. So actually, I have spoken to him and he is sending me documentation. So watch this space. Okay, this is the last one. Um... Right, so our listeners will no doubt recall the challenge we issued a few weeks ago uh, regarding page numbers in Hebrew books. That's uh, three weeks ago, I think. Uh, the page numbers are in, in Sorum are not written in Arabic numerals but or Roman numerals, but using the Hebrew gematria. So page, let's say, I don't know, 546 would be uh, tough, kuf, mem, vov, and then you do the maths. Um, the question that we asked with regards to Gematrius, which end up spelling a negative word, Ra, Resh Ayin, being the most obvious means evil, Retzach, murder, we mentioned this last time. Was there a concerted effort or a ruling to change the order so that Ra is now Er, Ayin, Resh, the other way around? Um, um, and instead of Retzach, you have Chatzer, which means a courtyard, or Rachatz, which is familiar from the Sedanite to wash. So uh, we are very grateful to the research and follow-up from Daniel Lipson, who is a researcher and librarian at the National Library in Israel, who sent an article where all is revealed, sort of. In the earliest printed text, going as far back as 1475, um, the tour does change Ra to Er, but none of the other numbers. A year later in Manitoba, any 
wording, any sort of uh, numbering which could have a negative connotation was changed. Sonsino, the famous Italian printers, not long afterwards, printed the smug and they only changed the word ra. And a year later, Sonsino printed a tour and there are no changes there. Do you think these are demanded by the person funding the project? Could be, yes. It goes on to say, even within the same set of Svarim printed over a number of years in Krakow, we find differences. Urachaim is changed, Yerodea is not. Um, so, I mean, it could be there were different people funding different uh, volumes. Um, and it ex- extends not only to page numbers, but dates of printing. So, Svarim or letters much closer to our time in uh, the year 1938 which is ominous in retrospect as the year uh, Tirzach, which is either you shall be murdered or you shall murder. So when the Chaznish records that date, he writes it as usual in those four letters, Tofresh Sadiches, whereas Rav uh, Arya Pogromansky changes it. The Briskorov seems unbothered and Rav Chaim Oizah changed it. So clearly over the past 500 years, it has been done, but equally clearly, there's no single directive or conformity. Wow. He really did do his research. Thank you, uh, Mr. or Professor Lipson. Um, definitely <laughs> on his way to a professorship <laughs> if he's not quite there yet. After your podcast. <laughs> no, but it's very flattering to hear that the, the level of intellectuals around the world listening. And um, I think it would be a nice idea if possibly the emails we receive if we could read some out why should people uh, lose out from hearing people's questions and i'm sure there'll be people who would like a mention so thank you again please do feel free to send reviews questions and we will try and answer them on the podcast to podcasts at jle.org.uk thank you rabbi hash and we are on for the final next week no next week we are actually going to do a two-part series on the origins of christianity given the time of year oh wow okay so apologies we're finished with prime ministers we're done well on to the origins of christianity we're looking forward it sounds fascinating thank you and good night